0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Welcome to New Books in the American South. I'm your host, Brandon Jett. On today's podcast, I'm speaking with Dr. Edward L. Ayers, the Tucker Boatwright Professor of the Humanities and President Emeritus of the University of Richmond. Dr. Ayers has been named National Professor of the Year, received the National Humanities Medal from President Obama at the White House, served as president of the Organization of American Historians, and won the Bancroft Prize for Distinguished Writing in American History. He is also the executive director of New American History, an online project based at the University of Richmond, designed to help students and teachers to see the nation's history in new ways. Today, we're talking about his most recent book, Southern Journey, The Migrations of the American South, 1790 to 2020, published by LSU Press this last year. This book is a really fascinating re-examination of the American South through the lens of migration, through dozens and dozens of unique color maps created with... Uh, Pretty awesome GIS technology and tools. He argues that the South was not and never has been a static place, but instead, over the last 200 years, it has been a place of constant movement and change. Dr. Ayers, welcome to the podcast.
0: Thanks very much.
1: Uh first and foremost congratulations on this book. Um when I first received it in the mail, I was just really blown away by the beauty of it. I mean, it really is just 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 a really beautiful book uh to hold and have and and I've placed it out on my coffee table for all my friends to come over and look at. So, um really congratulations on the book.
0: Well, that's uh that's to due to LSU. Um uh, you know the, the gestation of the book. Uh you know I was invited to give Three lectures there, um, and those usually end up being a book of you know 120 pages, a small book, and you know they've they've often been distinguished. And so, in my spirit of making everything as hard as possible for anyone who has the bad fortune to be associated with me, I'd say, "Hey, I'm delighted to do that." Uh, but what do you say instead of that? We make a basically a coffee table book with 80 full color maps. Um, and that then we make a digital accompaniment to it and, uh, yeah, what do you think? And they said, yeah, l- let's do that. And so, uh, it's better than I could have imagined turning out, as you, as you said, you know, the, the cool cover, I don't know what that sur- that subs, but it's kind of got a great texture and kind of a burlap, uh, uh, binding on it. And yeah, my um, kid is so four years
1: old and she loves touching things and she just keeps petting yeah. it like it's a, a cat um, or a dog.
0: Well, good. That means you, you'll need to buy several more copies then, I think, you know. Uh, <laughs> but uh, obviously, the, all of that's possible because of my collaborators, uh, Justin Madrid, Nathaniel Ayers, who actually uh, made it possible to make those maps. So we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit. But uh, it's a, a deeply collaborative project. Most of the things that you like about it, I had no real hand to do it. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Well, yeah. I mean, uh, I think it's really uh, just just an exciting and new way to engage with Southern history, and this kind of gets me in into one of the questions I wanted to ask you as soon as I, I saw you had a new book out, and that is, you know, you've been doing this for for a long time. Uh, I feel like there's not a whole lot that probably surprises you these days about Southern history, and you know, people who've 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 grown up over the last several decades have heard you talking about Southern history. We've we've read your works. Uh, so what was it about about this this project and and this new approach of, of, of using these maps and these digital visualizations of migration patterns that really made you think, you know what? There's there's something new and unique here that that I'd like to explore.
0: Yeah, you know, there's different strands in my career, which you very politely just suggest is uh, older than dirt. Uh, and uh, eh, yeah, there we go but i'm still surprised you know i'm really you know it's uh, 40 years ago that i started teaching and so it's a long time to think about a place even a place as big and as fascinating and as complicated as the american south and uh of course you know along the way i was six years as a dean at uva then eight years as a president so uh that you know took some of the concentration on the south off even though that obviously virginia has played an important role in Southern history. And I've I've stayed here partly because it's fun to have my scholarship connect with the other things that I'm doing in public history and academic leadership and so forth. And, uh, you know, it is interesting to see how Southern history has changed. I don't know that it's ever been any better now. It's really rich. We keep broadening and deepening our questions. Um, And, uh, you know, it is interesting to think about if it will disappear as a separate topic. Uh, People ask me that all the time, uh, and maybe that's something we can address a little bit later. But the Southern journey is the confluence of two things that I've been sort of obsessed with for a long time. One, the most profound social change of our time, as we all know, is the emergence of these digital networks. And uh, I stumbled into digital history at the very beginning, before the World Wide Web existed. in in the valley of the shadow. And we really, we had started making that uh, in something called SGML, which actually stands for Standard Generalized Markup Language, but we called it Sounds Good, Maybe Later. (laughs) But that ended up being the mother language of HTML, which of course the web is built from. And so we'd already started building the valley of the shadow in SGML when somebody, a friend in computer science, called me to his office and said, look at this, Ed, here's something brand new called the world wide web I don't know if that'll stick that's too hard to say and it's built in the same language that we're using to build the valley of the shadow so we were on the web six months after the web existed Um, and yeah and uh, so just by accident I I became sort of the grandfather (laughs) of digital history uh, of thinking about this doing it long before pdf files existed and things like that we're we're making the thirtieth anniversary edition of the Valley project. We're rebuilding it so it'll work on your phone and we'll and we'll and we'll uh use all the new techniques and platforms that people have, but we're still sharing all the data, all the software free so that people can uh use it as they wish. So that whole idea of making something that's shared. So the fact that we built something, you know, coming on thirty years ago on the web, which is like a thousand years and, you know. Uh, a normal lifetime, um, I kind of feel an obligation to see what the new possibilities are for these technologies. And uh, when I went from Virginia to Richmond, I decided that was a time that we're not gonna sort of type in primary documents anymore as what the web can do, which made sense in 91 and 92, but we're gonna harvest this enormous bounty of machine-readable data that we can see, and so, visualization is really what I've been focusing on since 2007 in the digital scholarship lab that I founded at Richmond. But that I have done nothing to actually perpetuate. You'll notice <laughs> a theme here. Uh, I was going to say, man,
1: you're giving away all of your secrets.
0: Well, no, but the, the secret is find good collaborators. Sure. And use use your good fortune of you know having been a dean or president. One thing I can do is say, hey, let's create this. You know, let's try to find a funding stream for this uh, to enable it, that we don't have to go out and get an NEH grant every two years to sustain things. And so I think if if I'm a musician, my instrument is an institution, (laughs) is that I kind of figure out ways to tap into resources and capacities, (laughs) basically create opportunities for other people. So at the Digital Scholarship Lab. Uh, They are building American panorama, a digital atlas of American history. Rob Nelson, Justin Madren, Nathaniel Ayers, inventing all these incredible ways to do things that I could never have imagined. So I was in there one day and saw they'd made this great map, which everyone should look at, of the forced migration of the American South, in which they developed this new technique to show areas uh, where population was either increasing or decreasing. with something called hex bins, which are areas smaller than counties, right? And so there's a way anybody who's done anything in Southern history, you know, since the South is actually quite new, you know, it's basically invented the 1820s and 30s and 40s and 50s, right? The county boundaries are constantly changing. And right. Florida, you know. <clears throat>
1: yes. I'm down in South in Florida. Florida. We are very aware of how often our county boundaries change.
0: <laughs> right. So this technique allowed us to study. So in the meantime, I got this invitation from LSU to give these lectures, the Fleming lectures. You know, it's one of the things you'd like to do if you're a Southern historian. It's a great tradition. So I said, yes. And so I thought, okay, how can I combine just in three lectures uh, these exciting new techniques? Um, And I went to Justin and Nate and said, hey, guys, would you be willing to think about doing white people as well as black and let's do immigrant as well as, and let's do native people and let's do 230 years. <laughs> and, and so they they both thought that sounded fun. Justin is an expert in GIS and Nate is an expert in design. Um, and so but you put the two of them together. And so the challenge was, you know, how do we, make maps that cover 230 years that are consistent enough that you can actually look at, say the COVID crisis, uh, but all the way back to the first migrations and and native uh, dispossession and the sling trade. So they, it took some, and the, my talks to LSU, the maps didn't look this good, but my friends were patient down there and I got the idea. So that was one confluence. The other, I've had one passion throughout my career, which is to, make the South move. You know, I wrote this book in 92, Promise the New South. And the whole idea is everything you think about the South is wrong. (laughs) Is that most of our images of it are all about stasis, a place stuck in time. So you can see how these things can go. Now I can actually show black, white, native and immigrant people moving across this landscape the size of continental Europe, changing from every decade to the next and i can show how all those folks made each other's history which is another great pa- passion of mine is integrating southern history so we don't segregate it by race the way that it was in reality uh, and also that we can use these cool new ways of seeing things so um and i i finished the presidency a couple of years earlier and uh, had been, this book had sort of been on the you know slow cooker uh and uh it was a way to say okay, uh, I'm still interested in Southern history, let's come back. But so that's a long answer to your question, Brandon, but, but it's a way of just suggesting that uh, how a relatively brief book had a long uh, gestation of a lot of different things coming together.
1: Well, and, you know, that's that's one of the things that I was really struck with um, when I when I first started looking through this book is just how long it must have taken to create all of the data that that the narrative is in based off of. So there's 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 a ton of maps. I didn't count all of them, but there are dozens and dozens. I think for every single decade between 1790 and and 2020, uh, you've got two or three visual maps um, that that are really detailing. Uh, where populations are increasing and where they're decreasing. Uh, and it tells a really fascinating story, but you don't necessarily know that going into it. So I really wanted to know a little bit about what what you were thinking when you went into the project of, hey, let's spend an awful lot of time and 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 resources uh, constructing all of this data and, and hope to God that at the end of it, there's something compelling to tell. So what was that process like in terms of um, time, which you already alluded to a little bit, but uh, in terms of kind of wrapping your head around this idea that that this could take an awful lot of time to compile, and at the end of it, there might not be anything uh, that's that's uh, you know worth worth worthwhile at the end. So, so what was that process like?
0: Well, that's the thing about words, you know, they're infinitely malleable, and you can make them do anything you want to do, but you're right you lay out a map like this and it either shows something or it doesn't right but what's what's different about these maps is that they are not used to illustrate a story i already knew but they were designed to provoke a story that i would have to tell so the analogy that i come up with is they're like a, an mri you know, and that that they are here is what happened for the each ethnicity in this one decade, and what does it show us? Then it was my job to basically plunder the entire literature of the American South of of history and try to figure out what's going on in Arkansas in the 1840s, right? And so it was really like reading an X-ray in which, okay, here is the anomaly, here's the big change, Um, and how do I explain it? So that was fun because, you know, I'd not written really about the very early 19th century before. I didn't really know very much, and and it's kind of a not a blank space in Southern history, but it's not. It it does kind of fall between the cracks of colonial and antebellum. You know, what's happening in 18 teens and 20s, right? And we also know that Native history tends not to be woven into the history of slavery very dramatically. So that was the big thing. So the short answer to your question, which I promised to give in, 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 to, in response to some question you asked, <laughs> was um, I know there's something interesting happening all the time. What is it? Um, but I would say this, that the 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 making of the maps, the data already exists. It's census data. So we, di- we didn't have to gather that. The breakthrough came when Justin and Nate uh, came up with the idea of the hex bins. And then Nate, who I'll just go ahead and point out, has the same last name as I do, as in <laughs> fact my son. Um,
1: See, I noticed yeah, that.
0: Yeah. yeah um, and which adds another whole le- level of complexity to all this. <laughs> when I've been asking to make draft number eight of something. Knowing that I was going to have to see him that weekend, you know, <laughs> at our house where we don't talk about work. But yeah, there's 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 uh, the
1: boss at Ayers and then there's there's the dad at Ayers.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It was all supplicant. Uh, you know, would you please <laughs> be willing to change the cut point on this one more time? So it was an iterative process, though, because you'd make it and you go, oh, well, first of all, Nate came up with the whole idea of the very beautiful blue marking the decline and sort of elements of gold marking the increase and yeah you, know, you can find that it after you look at one map you figure out oh okay i got it it's the same technique even though i'm talking about the late 20th century and latinx immigration it's the same one as i was looking at uh, the migration of white southerners from 1790 to 1810 right and so i think that that was uh, so finding the voc- the visual vocabulary that would allow us to show widely differing things, but in a way that didn't require us to reinvent the wheel for every decade. Uh, But then there's also quite a few maps that, I mean, one I particularly love is um, native dispossession that, uh, so when you go on the story map, you can actually online, we can talk about that. You can actually see the animation. You realize that almost all of the South was occupied by native people in 1814. Right. So we used to think about the, the, the Trail of Tears, but the 20 years before the Trail of Tears uh, is when most of the millions of acres are actually seized by um, white Southerners to perpetuate slavery. So I think that the um, answer to your question is, is that it was a lot of trial and error and trying to find uh, in the making of the math. But there was a lot of trial and error in the writing of the narrative, which is the hard, it's the hardest pages I've ever written because how do you write about an image, you know, without saying? So we can talk about that. But anyway, it, it was the whole thing was an experiment, uh, just to see what might be possible in this era, and um, so whatever happened was a result of it, was the, what the outcome of the experiment was, right? Yeah. Um,
1: So can I ask you a question, you know, as, as, as you're talking about this and, you know, you've got, you've got this institutional support, you're obviously in a position where you can kind of command some institutional support as well. You've got a number of people working with you. Uh, is, is this kind of digital project that then becomes, uh, this, this, this larger book, is this accessible to, to anyone who, who is interested in this stuff? I mean, or is this, is this only something that, that an Ed Ayers can do? Um, because I, I mean just the amount of time and and resources that it required or, or or do you think there are some easier ways that that kind of younger scholars or people who are interested in this could kind of step into this
0: yeah that's a great question people used to uh kind of hassle me about the valley the shadow project saying, so you built a, one of the first digital history projects and you build you know the a, a taj mahal instead of something that you know that requires 14 years and you know dozens of collaborate. Well, I didn't set out to do that. I had no idea you'd find 14 years worth of stuff about two counties, you know, uh, and, uh, but yeah, I would, i I'm, it's important that people, um, know the possibilities that lay within reach, uh, for the digital. So, um, I, I, i mentioned these two projects that, um, not to promote them since, None of these are for a profit in any case, but in a class of freshmen at University of Richmond, we made two projects. One is called Black Virginia, which is blackvirginia.richmond.edu, in which these first year students took the Richmond Planet, the African-American newspaper uh, from 1890 to 1920, and each was responsible for a year of that paper, read it all on I think it's been digitized by the Library of Virginia, and then select it out. But, but as we know, those newspapers are still just just a mass of, of words, right? They don't have any shape to the article. So they would go in and uh, reclaim the article identity, paraphrase it, and then link it. We built a website in one semester using Omeka, a free open source software that anybody can use. And then we made another one on, called "Reconstructing Virginia" using the, the Richmond Dispatch from 1865 to 1870, doing the same thing. So, walking into the classroom, and I said, "So, folks, I want—we're making. What can you tell me about Reconstruction?" And they all, uh, "It failed." <laughs> it's, the, it's the one thing we teach, right? Yeah, yeah. And which is a really discouraging thing. At the thing end of the semester, everything. when
1: we're trying to wrap everything up as quickly as we can, right?
0: Right. Rather than the greatest experiment in democracy in America, it right. failed. And, you know, that has a real political consequence. Right. Uh, and uh, so I'd say what do you say that you, we make a website for you 18 months ago when you were in AP U.S. history, wherever you were. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it reveals Reconstruction in a way that you had not seen. The other one, I said, what can you tell me about black lives between Reconstruction and the civil rights movement? And they said uh Booker T. Washington and W. B. Du Bois argued with each other
1: hmm
2: right
0: right <laughs> that's kind of what our there's, there's <laughs> a little
1: more to it than that,
0: but, but that's what they was it, it, what our textbooks say and I say we, we want to show we're going to look at from the black point of view what was actually happening in the black community, so that's where the richmond planet so that was also made in one semester by freshmen with some help from one kind person in the library who helped set up a mecca. So those are things that are really, and that's called reconstructingvirginia.richmond.edu. And so I I said to the kids, here's a blank whiteboard. What should this look like? And they said, well, it should just have two buttons, explore and about. You click on explore. And since we don't know anything uh, about either of these subjects right now, uh, it should randomize. It should show us 10 cool articles. It should use whatever images are available, and it should uh, give a word cloud to sort of a prompt, and uh, and then it should organize things so you can just browse. And so we just made it in that way. So compared to the days when we started the Valley Shadow, when we actually had to raise $100,000 to buy 10 workstations and one server, which you could buy at Staples today for 500 bucks, right? It's so much, and, and, and PDF files already exist. But I think it's important, and I worry about this. I mean, as somebody who believes that we can't really afford, as historians, to waste the web. Right, you know? right. Yeah, I, and, the I, most important tool of our time, maybe. And we've made so little progress uh, that I, I feel, you know, I'm just trying to... Hand the baton to the next generation who's really ready to do something with this, right? I'm just trying sure. not to fall over before I get to where the <laughs> baton switches. And so it's a it's a line though, Brandon, because on one hand, you don't want to set standards as you're saying, but you know, in many ways I traded I became dean partly so I could sustain the value of the shadow. They mm-hmm. offered me the deanship and I said, well, if you would put this money into that so I could do that, they said, okay. So that's the only reason the value of the shadow exists is that I I, <laughs> I, I, I described it as selling body parts. <laughs> you know? nice. I will give you six years of my life. Uh, and, if you let uh, me keep this that. project? Yeah, yeah. And then when I left UVA, they sustained it. So um, that, that, that's to their credit. But it's a real issue. But So here's what I would say is that like with those newspapers, they already existed in digital form. The value added is what historians know. Let's do that. We don't have to invent the software now. We can just use off the shelf free source things in the same way you're doing with a podcast. This was impossible a decade ago, right? And so I think, and it's not surprising, the historians are taking the things the lowest hanging fruit, Twitter, you know, podcast, that's all great. But my dream is that we still reimagine what scholarship can be, you know, that we ask new questions, that we show in new ways. But we, you know, I was I, I chaired a committee for the American Historical Association on digital scholarship and pointed out that the barriers that there's you know, so many jobs say we want somebody who does digital history, but we've never defined what it is and you can't get tenure for it.
1: Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. I've seen that repeatedly. Um, we don't know what to do with this stuff, but we really want you to do something with this stuff.
0: Right. But we don't recognize it as scholarship.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So, and so what we said in that in that statement, which some of my friends in digital humanities took to be um, not fully appreciating digital scholarship, I'm saying, what is scholarship?
2: Mm-hmm. It's
0: not just a gathering of information. It's making an argument. It's making a contribution to an ongoing conversation. So Southern Journey is an attempt to use digital sources to make arguments that intersect with the ongoing conversation that is Southern history. That's ultimately what this is, to show that you can make an argument with digital stuff that you couldn't make otherwise. Absolutely. That is kind of, that's the kind of the point of, of the whole enterprise.
1: And I think the really fascinating thing about this book is no one's going to pick it up and and read through the entire thing and think this is not very scholarly. I think you've done a really great job of kind of blending this, this visualization and these digital tools in a way that demonstrates the real value of using this. Um, and so I think we could maybe shift into the book a little bit, if that's OK with you. Yeah, sure. Um and and one of the really fascinating things that, that I first noticed when when I opened this book is is you start uh, by explaining to readers how to read the book, which I think is really <laughs> uh, a funny start to any book. Why did you feel that was necessary to to say, hey, reader, you picked up this this massive, and it really is a massive book. Uh, you've picked up this 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 big book, and now I need to tell you how to read it.
0: Well, it's because I would shared it with some uh, fellow senior colleagues who told me that it's not obvious what you're supposed, how you're supposed to read it. Right. (laughs) And because we, people know of an atlas, right. Which is a research, a, a, um, you know, a reference book and they know of a narrative that uses a map here and there to illustrate something, but we're not used to something that gives maps priority of place. Mm -hmm. That's what the book is about. Mm-hmm. And so it's kind of framing expectations that this, the books are not the maps are not illustrations, right? The words are explanations. I just made that up. Yeah. It sounds really great. That the beginning. But, Maybe but that, that should be,
1: have been the, the, the title of that it, section, not how to read this book. Uh, the maps are not illustrations. Yeah. They're explanations. I like it. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, it, it, It really does take a minute to figure out how you're going to go through and read this, not only um, with the maps. You know, oftentimes when I was in high school and we'd have to do these readings in the textbook, when you saw the map, you'd just skip over it and you'd think, hey, that's great. That's one less page I have to read. But um, I think it is, as you said, really important for readers to understand that the maps kind of drive the book um, and and the rest is kind of explaining what you see in front of you. Um, So you've got this.
0: Yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead.
1: I was just gonna say so. So you've got this book. Um it's big, but but in terms of of readability, it's very accessible. You don't need to be an expert in Southern history to really engage with it. Um, and and one of the arguments I think you're making in this is that with these new visualizations and this data that 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 you've created, you get a, a new understanding of Southern history across the last two hundred and fifty uh, plus years. Uh, and so you've you've broken this up into three sections. I'm going to go through and just kind of give give listeners an idea of what those sections are. You've got creating the South, 1790 to 1860, the Restless South, 1860 to 1940, and Arrival and Return, 1940 uh, to 2020. And so I just wanted to to have you maybe explain to everybody a little bit of. What it was about the visualizations that 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 prompted you to kind of make these eras? What what was the connection between what you saw and then these these sections that that you've you've come up with?
0: Yeah, thanks. But that, you know, 1790 to 1860 is not really a mind blowing uh, innovation there. It's the it's the slave South. And uh, I think that, you know, the phrases that I try to displace are both the old South. And I always point out that large parts of Mississippi, Alabama, Florida, and Texas were about as old as a subdivision at the time of the Civil War, right? They're brand new. They're 25 years old. if that. And so get over this old South stuff, okay? And antebellum, as if people know there's a war coming, you know, it's like, okay, oh, hey, 21 and a half years till the war. They, they're they not living in the antebellum period, right? <laughs> they're living. We, or one way to think about it, we're always living in an antebellum period. We just don't know when to war. <laughs>
1: That's very true. That's <laughs> very true.
0: <laughs> so it's called Creating the South because it it shows three major processes happening simultaneously and interacting. One is the displacement of the Native people who, as I mentioned, occupy the great majority of the South. The other is the migration of white people who do not own enslaved people, and the other, and the, 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 in some ways, what becomes the spine of Southern history is the forced migration of enslaved people, right? So trying to show how those things interacted. So there's lots of surprises. Uh, one is just really how closely related uh, dispossession, of especially the Cherokee and Choctaw and Chickasaw, and the Seminole are. And the immediate arrival of slavery. I mean, you know, they, they occupy the best land because they know where it is and they are sustaining themselves for generations. And so the places that we think of as the Black Belt are, were the Native Belt. And to, to, I, I think that's important for us to realize in a more concrete and specific way than we have that it is, uh, and it happened almost simultaneously. And it happened, and, and Claudio San helps to see this in his wonderful new book on, on uh, Native dispossession uh, that it's not an accident <laughs> that uh, the Native people are pushed aside because they are occupying the land that the wealthiest and most powerful white people covet for slavery. But the majority of white people don't move to those places because the majority of white people are not slaveholders. And so almost from the beginning of Southern history, you see kind of a version of white flight, which is most white people moving to places where there are not large plantations, partly because they can't afford the land because it's valuable, and, but partly because they are moving to places where they feel like they might have a better chance of they're not competing with uh, enslaved labor. So to see uh, you know, the swirling of these three patterns um, I think shows Southern history in a, a dynamic way that, frankly, you know, we, we have several pictures of the Southern migration in mind that are our enemy. One is like um, what the expansion of slavery looked like is like just arrows <laughs> coming out of Virginia, South Carolina, right? But you see how a county that could be a a, a net importer of enslaved people one decade becomes an exporter the next. And that how places that seem promising to white settlers one decade are depopulated next. I think about my own native East Tennessee, just in case you can hear a Southern accent, that's the particular variant you're hearing here, which is the hillbilly accent of East Tennessee and Western North Carolina. Uh, And how those places were implicated in all of this as well. So it sets the tone for the entire book, Brandon, which is to show that what we think of as fixed and static, the slave South had in fact to be created and was still in the process of being created at the time that the South brings the Civil War down on itself. Uh, and it's pretty interesting, a couple of interesting maps on all this. One we'd never seen before, the sex ratio of enslaved people. And to see that for most of the South, women predominate. But there are some places, sugar districts in particular, where males predominate. But then the mystery of why in Virginia there'd be more men is because if you're those small slaveholders and you are only able to purchase one or two people, you purchase a woman. And so it pulls women out of the older places of Maryland and Virginia um, and So I think that's a helpful way that demographic information can help us see something profound about the human experience, the way that families are being systematically ripped apart, not only teenage boys and girls, but women from men because of the the market demand. And the other one is to show that who supported secession, mainly people who had recently moved, were not slaveholders necessarily, and wanted more free or cheap land. And so, whereas the people who own the most uh, property and enslaved people, no, I'm good. <laughs> let's, let's let's don't rock the boat. So, that, those are all ways that demography, which is not really the sexiest word, uh, and I, I found some of my friends kind of not smirk exactly, but sort of just say, "So, Ed, hey, you're still doing that demographic project, you know, you know?" Um, and but uh, demography. Is the most democratic history. You know, half the people on those maps are female, right? And so it showing you know, the buzzwords of agency and so forth. Well, it's not necessarily their agency that's moving, but it's their lives that are reflected there. And obviously, this is the only way that we can see enslaved people uh, as lines on the census. So harvesting what we have to give as much of the three dimensionality of people's lives as we can is what we're doing. So. that's why creating the south i will come up for air if you want to ask me anything about that before i go on to part yeah sure one
1: uh i feel like uh your explanation there was an was a personal attack on on the map i use when teaching about western expansion right it's it's these arrows of of things coming out of virginia and and um both both kind of enforced migrations and then voluntary migrations uh but you're absolutely right that that that's kind of all we we explore and then kind of leave it at that and and encourage students to maybe look at things a little bit more deeply and I think your work in this book really allows people to look at some of those migrations a little bit more deeply. Um,
0: one of the and also wherever you live in the South, you say you're a part of it, right? So if you're teaching in Florida or uh, Arkansas, you can say, "Oh, let's look at our place." Well, look at this. You know, that's the other, it's another way that it's democratic. I mean. For me, the fascination with the, the digital is it's a democratic medium that allows us to reach people for free who would never read our monographs and also to make history a, a, a participant sport rather than a spectator sport, right? And it also ties into genealogy. You know, I found that that's been the people who, who've contacted me most about this or fascinated by, by this. So it's a way that I think that we make the idea, I mean, My own history. If I've never found an obscure quote that I didn't love, (laughs) my 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 history is very uh, driven by trying to let people speak for themselves, Uh, and and ironically to do all the research so I can get out of the way is kind of a weird thing. But this is a a project in the same way. I'm just this map is shows what happened, what the choices that these non-slaveholding white people made. What did they do? the choices that black people had no no say in, what happened to them? And of course, native people as well. So it's, uh, you're right about kind of what the the purpose is. The other map that I hate is in part two is the big red arrow that goes from Mississippi Delta to Chicago about the great migration, right? And and I think in many ways, the, the next section of the book from 1870 to 1940 um is which embraces the great migration but shows it's not at all the way we've imagined it. Um yeah. So
1: well, let's get into that section in just a moment. I did want to ask you to clarify maybe for for listeners who who aren't um Quite as academically inclined, and and maybe just engaging with this 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 book, or interested in engaging with this book um, for the first time, you you argue that one of the major transforming forces in the South in the nineteenth century was this idea of a settler society. Um, and so, could you just explain what what that concept means to you, and and in, in terms of this book, just to kind of set the stage a little bit for some of our listeners?
0: Yeah, thanks a lot. That's a hard question, Brandon. Uh, <laughs> and uh, so it turns out that. People who've written global history have noticed that people from uh, Great Britain, uh, whether they were in Australia or New Zealand or Canada or South Africa or the United States, uh, created settler colonialism compared to the same British people in, say, India, right, where they are adapting themselves to an existing indigenous population, in settler colonialism, the indigenous population is displaced in order to recreate as much of the existing white social, excuse me, uh, as possible. And that's very clearly what happens in the American South. Uh, the, The U.S. South is unusual in that it was the only settler society that was also a slave society, right? So you find white people displacing indigenous people, not only to make little versions of England, but then to create something entirely new, which was a plantation society in which white people lived among black people, right? Other British colonies, they displaced indigenous people to create plantations that are overseen by people they pay while they go back and live in big houses in England, right? The American South is a place where these three histories are woven together. So it, it shows us both the ways that the South is a part of, of transnational history, but the way that the South is also quite unusual uh in its combination.
1: And you also uh argue that the South is is kind of unique uh from other slave societies in the Western hemisphere. And and this is is a quote you had that that I found really surprising. You say, um only in I'm sorry, only the Americans created a dominant landed class that routinely ripped itself up by the roots to create new plantation in its own vast and expanding territory. Uh, and I thought that was a really fascinating argument that you're making, because I often have these these images in my own mind of, you know, you've, you've, you've got these plantation owners, they set up shop um, in Virginia, and then they're just there um, until until they die. But you 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 seem to make the case that this is a landed elite that is Constantly on the move and and kind of recreating these plantation um, places in 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 all of these new territories that are being acquired.
0: Yeah, it's there. You know, uh, I live in rural Virginia now. I can look across the road. There's a plantation from 1824 that was there. Well, you know, if your kids come up, how many times can you divide that, right? And also, what can you grow in Virginia in the 1840s? Nothing very profitable. Whereas they're basically, but you have say 60 enslaved people that your daughter or your son can take to Alabama and uh, use some of the capital you've acquired over generations of being a planter in Virginia, they can start basically new dynasties. And that's, that's basically what happens is that you have the seed capital from older plantations are used to create because it it's very expensive to create a new plantation in Alabama. Uh, you know, we, we have the idea that you know, sort of show up, you know, like you know, absalom, absalom, and sort of you know, carve it out of the wilderness. Instead, you show up with a labor force of 15 people that you've marched from Virginia or shift, uh, and then later on a railroad, uh, and you, in a way that no white settler without enslaved people could possibly hope to do, clear. 200 acres that you get a cotton crop in the next year, and you're making a huge profit. So, that is, I I think, my sentence, it's got lots of vibrant verbs in it, I I see. Uh, But uh, the class itself uprooted itself, but it was often across generations, right? So, that's how you can have, and one reason that you'd find the South is unified enough to go into, into secession in the Civil War. Is that people are unified by by kin, from Texas to back to Texas to to Virginia, South Carolina, right? So you basically have a, a class that's replicating itself by uprooting itself. Another reason that the whole phrase of the Old South is is a misnomer. Absolutely.
1: All right. So let's kind of move into that section. That second section, uh, you've got it from 1860 to 1940, and you call it the Restless South. Um, and I'm always really fascinating entire. Fascinated in titles, I think titles really tell us a lot about about what authors are thinking um, and, and and how they understand the period. So, how did you you land on this th- this title and then this this periodization of Southern history um, as as restless?
0: Yeah, well, in some ways, uh, shameless self referential. It's the maiden theme, of Promise of the New South, that I wrote back in 1992, in which I'm so- showing there was nowhere for Black people to go outside the South. Mm-hmm. They were not welcome, but they moved around in enormous numbers inside the South trying to make lives for themselves out of nothing, right? You come into freedom with this shirt on your back. Congratulations. Here, make a life. And what the maps show is I think it's very surprising to people that when Black people had the option of moving, they moved to the same places that they had been moved forcibly under slavery. Mm -hmm. They're still moving to the Black Belt. And so I tried to explain to young people, okay, why would they do this? Well, I explained sharecropping. If you get half of what you could grow, you don't want to stay in Virginia when half of what you can grow is not worth anything. Mm -hmm. You know, know, (laughs) hay is not really worth anything, right? But you go to Mississippi Delta where you can girdle some of these big cypress trees and the soil underneath has been growing richer for a thousand years. And you can grow cotton that's so tall you have to pick it on horseback. And you get half of that, send me there, right? So we, we superimpose our ideas of the Deep South and segregation and Jim Crow and violence. But at the time, and, and all, of course, all those things grow out of the fact that Black people move there to make lives for themselves, right? Uh, and so that what you find is that th- those those people are moving uh, in ways that seem now to us counterintuitive, knowing what happens in the Great Migration, but they're moving to the the places where they are have a return on what they know how to do, which is to be farmers, and to their dream is to get money to, to become a renter and then to become a landowner, and they're able to, right? So that's another thing. Showing all of this is that Black people never settle for what is handed to them. They're restless, looking for it. They're moving to the lumber camps. They're moving to Birmingham to the steel mills. They're moving to Tennessee for coal mines. They're moving to Florida for phosphates. Right? And all these ways are constantly moving, which is an important thing for people to know about Black history between Reconstruction and World War II. Right? It also helps explain why the Civil Rights Movement is the product of Black Southerners. Right? How can they do that? Well, it's because, as the book shows, they've moved to towns and cities. Think about where does Martin Luther King come from? Right? They're, They're coming out of a middle class that's creating itself out of migration to these towns and cities. So they're restless, right? White Southerners are restless, too, because they're moving to mill towns. They're they're moving to the west. They're moving to places that had not been considered uh, livable before, the piney woods, where you can make some money lumbering. Um, And so the whole idea is that this entire population is in constant movement and turmoil. It's more mobile than the north. and, you know, I argue and promise this is where segregation comes from, you know, and it comes from the railroads that are tying all of this together. So but if a million white Southerners leave in this time. They're going to California and, and uh, Oregon and New York, uh, which is important to know as well. Black Southerners leave at the first moment they're given a chance, of course, in World War I. Right. Um, and, and so that's why I call it the Restless South. It's the same spirit as showing the slave styles. It's not static, but the South between Reconstruction and World War II is even more dynamic uh, as people have the, the choice of where to move. And a lot just get the heck out of Dodge. <laughs> uh, and, and, and then black people leave as soon as they get the first choice. So that, that's why that's called that way, Francis.
1: And I really love the way in which this this movement is is presented in these maps. It it's it's very clear that that a lot is changing from decade to decade, uh, and and that's one of the things that I think readers will really be interested in. Is is we often think of the South after the Civil War uh, and through the Jim Crow period as kind of going back and harkening back to to an older period, remaining static and kind of in this period of 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 transition for sure. But it's not necessarily one that we often think of that that's terrible mobile. Um, and, and that's one of the things that I really appreciated uh, about the, the maps and, and the way you explain all of those changes. And I also really appreciated this idea that the Great Migration, while, while it's obviously uh, one of the largest movements of people in, in, in a very short period of time, uh, it didn't come out of nowhere. Uh, people in the South, Black people in particular, had been mobile uh, since the end of slavery and the end of the Civil War. And I thought that was really important to demonstrate too. Uh, you argued that 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 these are experienced migrants. Um, and in the 19-teens and 1920s, when provided the opportunity, as you just suggested, they're tapping into those experiences uh, and moving into places outside of the South.
0: Yeah, thank you. Um, and it's also the case that even more white people left the South than Black people left. Uh, That was going to be the next point. This
1: is also something that, that, that uh, is, is it, it involves white people as well. They're also um, leaving the South. And, and I, I thought another really fascinating visualization that was there was, was this idea of the Dust Bowl. um, And, and we often think of the Dust Bowl. Uh, obviously, it 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 involves Oklahoma, but I guess just in my understanding of what was going on in the Depression in the South, is kind of everybody was interested in maybe getting out, but but the maps show very clearly that is that it is really somewhat um, kind of concentrated in in some of those regions like Oklahoma, uh, but it isn't across the region where where white migrants are deciding to to cast their lot elsewhere. And I thought no. that was really important to show too.
0: In fact, the 1930s is the least mobile decade in Southern history. Yeah. Uh, uh, because people you know, can't afford to leave, and it's safer to be on a farm where you can at least feed yourself mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Th- than to move. But I-, I think something I really love that uh, Nate found this old I- – I found the 1920-something map of, of the boll weevil, and then he sort of brings this beautiful color to it. And then you put that there, and you see the boll weevil doesn't hit Georgia until the 1930s. Uh, whereas it had decimated Louisiana decades earlier, right? And you can see when it does that, you know, midnight train from Georgia, right? Because the <laughs> people are, are are leaving later. And the Great Migration, you're so as you're suggesting, is that these experienced migrants um, catch the nearest train mm-hmm. to the nearest place where there's opportunity. So rather than one big red arrow from Mississippi to Chicago, it's all these uh, interweaving arrows to you know not Detroit but also uh you know Pittsburgh
2: mm-hmm.
0: um and Rochester all these different opportunities that people are looking uh again which testifies to the self-awareness of black migrants, but also their determination to find opportunity wherever it might be available to them.
1: And I think the the maps are really fascinating too, especially during the period of the Great Migration and, and, and into the next section, into the later part of the 20th century, because you see just how vast uh, the, the black population in the South in particular was, and then how concentrated it becomes in those cities. When you look at the maps, you've got these vast areas across the Southeast uh, that are blue, indicating that that population is, is going down. And then you've got these very concentrated regions in the major cities. Uh, and I thought that was something that I kind of knew was happening. But when you see it, just, just the numbers of people and, and how spread out people were in the South and then how those communities are rec- recreated in these very compact ways uh, was really striking to me, even though I, I kind of knew that that was happening, just to see it.
0: Yeah, you think about the, the, the synonym we have now with urban music, mm-hmm. right, and black. Right. You know, and, and how much of a, a of course that makes sense, because in part three, uh, black people are moving to southern cities mm-hmm. uh, just as they are. They're, they're moving to southern cities at the same time. As they're moving to northern cities, which is another important thing about the Great Migration. Right. Houston and Dallas offer opportunity just like, you know, uh, Schenectady and, and, yeah. and uh, you know, Toledo might uh, in even greater numbers. So. I think that's another way to, and, and something else about this it expands. Texas and Florida are important in mm-hmm. migration. You can really see that, that, that a lot of the energy is coming from what you might think of as the margins of the South um, becomes the places where the action really is and where the opportunity lies.
1: Absolutely. As 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 a Texan and then now Floridian, I was I was particularly interested uh, in seeing some of those patterns. Um, And so we get into this final section of the book, uh, 1940 to 2020. This is really that that World War II, post-World War II period into, into the later part of the 20th century. And I think this is one of the more fascinating periods in Southern history because... It in many ways is kind of counterintuitive. All the things that the South presumably dislikes, expansive federal government, uh, all of a sudden really becomes the engine uh, for driving a lot of the changes that occur in the South um, economically, demographically, uh, and the like. So uh, just to kind of carry on with our theme of having you explain some of these subtitles uh, and, yeah. and this periodization, what was it about this, this, this period that based off of these migration patterns that you saw on these maps, did you decide this is, this is something we need to section off as something fundamentally different? Uh, and what is it that that made you want to describe this as as a period of, of arrival and return
0: yeah, so World war two you know it, it's, it's a huge impact and it's it's cool to watch all the the coastal south uh sort of really take off and the urban south take off. This is my own family history, my mom and dad. Moved from the mountains of North Carolina to a little industrial city in East Tennessee, Kingsport, Mm -hmm. in the early 1950s to work in the mills there. And, uh, you know, migrating uh, 70 miles changed our lives. Right. So I grew up in a place that, uh, you know, allowed me to have opportunities I wouldn't have had. And if I just lived out in the country. Mm -hmm. And um, so that's another part of all this is that migration doesn't require, you know, a thousand miles to be profound uh just moving into town <laughs> yeah. can make a big difference right and of course that's what's happened is the urbanization of the south since world war ii the title comes from a rival uh of several different groups first um for the first time in american history black people are choosing to move to the south
2: mm-hmm. starting
0: mm-hmm. in the 1970s and 80s and it's interesting how late along it because you see the great migration still going on through the more people move, black people move from the South to the, to the North in the 1940s mm-hmm. than they do in the 19 teens, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, but you can see then the beginning of the Rust Belt and so forth in the 60s and 70s, and black people saying, you know, I've got family ties in Atlanta, I'm going to move back there. Um, and uh, so you start seeing a sort of reclamation of the South by black people. Um, and These experienced migrants that,
1: are once again, using those, exactly. those strategies and experiences to come back.
0: And, but they probably, they may still have family and certainly have memory in the places that they're coming back to. They, they've been coming back all during the seventies and eighties, you know, for the family reunions and stuff. And now they realize that there's actually more economic opportunity for me in the South than there is in the North. And people don't know that say 85% of the black people who live in Atlanta, live in the suburbs More black people have moved to the suburbs since the 1970s than migrated in the Great Migration. Oh, wow. Yeah, I think that's a a, sentence embedded somewhere in there, which Mm -hmm. is amazing to think Mm -hmm. about, right? But it's the same theme, is that black people have looked for ways to make lives for themselves where the opportunities lie, right? The other arrival, of course, is the large arrival of people from across Latin America and, and across Asia after 1965. And this is something, you know, I'm not an expert in, you know, post World War II South. So I had to read a lot of books, including by sociologists and anthropologists and economists, right, to try to glimpse what's happening since 1965. And to see, you know, that now a quarter of people of, of Latin American ancestry live in the South and not just in Florida and Texas, which is really important. But, you know, I think we've seen, you know, in the COVID crisis, uh the understanding about you know food workers in rural places right and, and what a large percentage of them are from latin america and also the asian population after 1965 of how an urban population that is but how they have settled in and uh made lives for themselves in the south as well and then the third group um is that for the in 20 i think in 2000 for the first time, people could identify multiple ethnicities and people discovered that they were American Indian. And so that, that those maps I have in there, which are very carefully labeled, these are self-identified people who are Seminole or Cherokee or Choctaw, right? But and this is a puzzle I can't really solve. Most of them live in the same places where their ancestors were driven from. Uh, uh, and so did the How does that happen? Is that a is that a return, Uh, or was what I suspect? Certainly, knowing in Virginia, uh, tribes that were never granted federal recognition have always been here, and now that they can identify again, so I think that's a kind of redemptive story. You know that these these people were never gone uh, and had never given up their identity and are still here. So, uh, and of course, the white population. Uh, is so much moved to the exurbs and cities and so forth. You know, and, and Florida plays a big role in all this. I learned a lot about Florida history uh, reading about all of this. You know, and so I, I think that it's why its arrival and return, and, and white Southerners are returning to the South as well, feeling that there's a, a future for us here that that wasn't wasn't evident in the in the 50s and 60s, right? So it's kind of an a, upbeat ending. Uh, for those of us who care about the South, that it's a place that whose histories, whose demographic history was about tragedy and genocide and injustice for so long, is now being redeemed by the actions of people who were victimized before reclaiming the South. So that's the kind of the, that's the kind of the narrative arc there. Um, and, and the question is, what do we do with it, right? So I think you can see in American politics, as you know, Stacey Abrams in Georgia, right. How do you come back and, and sort of claim uh, a place that for your ancestors were enslaved, uh, but now make it, make it your own? So in many ways, that's the big drama that's playing out. And what's going to be the role of people from Latin America um, and people of, of Asian ancestry, too? How do they identify themselves in this new South? You think about p- people from the far right to the left. Uh, you, you, it doesn't map easily on, onto these ethnic identities.
1: Yeah, and I think we're seeing really interesting reactions to all of this diversification and change and migration back into the South with the politics as well. Um, that that I think your your book helps us understand a little bit more fully, just just where all of this is coming from. Um, and you know, one of the things I wanted to run by you is, you know, this is this is pretty um, well known terrain, I think, by most people, um, especially young people like students. You know, the post-war period, uh, they know about the civil rights movement. Um, Was there anything that 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 was new or interesting to you uh, about some of these these things that that historians have covered for for quite some time that that the data showed you, especially in this post-war period?
0: Yeah, I think, you know, people think they understand the civil rights movement. Right. And they don't really understand how deep its roots go, how indigenous its roots are. Uh, as you were suggesting before, that black people had known how to navigate this landscape for generations. Uh, And I think it's one of the great miracles and heartening facts about American history is that the greatest moral revolution in our history was led by the people who had suffered so much in slavery and segregation, right? Mm -hmm. And that rising above that injustice, With her eyes on some, you know, a kind of a a greater moral, it it, it makes you appreciate even more what an accomplishment that was. But it shows you how it was possible. It was made possible by people who were moving in the era of segregation, where they knew no matter where they they moved, they would not be able to vote, right? But they might be able to educate their children who would then be able to vote or the dislocations of World War II and the migrations and sort of the stirring of the pot and black people returning to places and saying, no, we're not gonna put up with that anymore. So I think it actually makes the demographic history, makes not only recent Southern politics comprehensible, but it makes the politics of the 50s and 60s and 70s comprehensible. Watching white Southerners move to the suburbs and the white flight uh, helps us understand, you know, the the turn to the Republicans in the 70s and 80s, right? It's a different, so sort of a major theme of everything I write about the South is that what looks like stability is in fact the result of change, right? And is that don't mistake um, something that you might think of as um, racial injustice as just a holdover from the past. No, it has to be created over and over again in new contexts. And so that's really, in some ways, what Southern Journey is about, is that we're still on this journey. Um, And I think part of the theme of it is, too, um, we, because Southern history has always changed, it can continue to change. It can be, you know, living in Richmond and being involved in the conversations about the Confederate monuments uh, and so forth. Who would have predicted 10 years ago they would be gone now, Right. But but here they are, and why? It's because people paid attention when nobody else was. Historians had things to say. You know, called our attention to the way that memory is constructed and all these kinds of things. Uh, and I think that if we, I, I tell students, there's only two things I've learned about American history, especially focusing on the South. One is what people expect to happen never does, and two, things that are much worse than you can imagine can happen and things that are much better than you can imagine can happen, right? And that the decision between those final two is partly your choice. Are you going to make things worse than you can imagine come to pass, or are you going to have these leaps like we did with the Civil Rights Movement? I grew up in the segregated South and watched it change before my eyes, watched the schools just transform, right? So I believe that um, Southern history is unfinished. Uh, there's a lot more of that. There's a lot more that this migration actually ironically has slowed. We're probably living in the United States as a whole in the least mobile decade of our history. Um, and uh, the, the South is something of an exception to that. But in general, uh, we are moving less than we ever have in the past. And we don't want our our imaginations to atrophy uh, as a result. We, we want to remember that people have remade the South before in better ways. We can remake it again.
1: Well, Ed, you've just given my parents one more reason to criticize me for moving thousands of miles away from where I was born. I was like, no one else is doing it. How come you decided to go ahead and do that? <laughs> um, well, yeah, just 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 to kind of wrap everything up here. You know, I think it's a really fantastic book, and one of the things I really appreciated. About it the most is just this idea of of the South as 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 a place and a region that is is dynamic, uh, and constantly undergoing transformations. And 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 as you suggest, sometimes these are these are great and radical and quick transformations. Some con- sometimes they're problematic and slow moving um, and, and ominous transformations. Uh, but, but again, I think just kind of shaking people out of that mindset that, well, it's, it's just the South. The South has always been that way, even when we come into this, this, this current period of, uh, you know, voting restrictions and things like that. I think people just assume, well, this is this is just what the South does, and it always has done that, which isn't necessarily wrong. But but you're suggesting that there's more at play than just this is just the way Southerners have always done things. But in fact, it's a response to some of the dynamic change that we've seen on the ground.
0: Yeah, and the most profound change we're seeing right now, I think, in politics is the contrast is fundamentally demographic is the contrast between places that are growing and places that are being depopulated. So my native Appalachia is suffering because there are not enough young people there now to sustain the tax base, the schools, and those people feel quite alienated from uh, the general political culture, uh, whereas here in Virginia, um, until recently, uh, you know, a profoundly democratic turn of uh, the arc of urban places from Washington down through Richmond to Hampton Roads. Uh, but you can see if you look at a map of the most recent election, most of the state is red, mm-hmm. where it's depopulating, and most of the places that are growing most rapidly, where people are hopeful, are blue. So I think the democracy is about the future of the South um, and the present of the South as well as its past. And I think if we understand why would people be so disenchanted if you understand the demographic consequences of what it means to live in a place that where hope is dying, mm-hmm. uh, it allows us maybe to, to think in more uh, empathetic ways about ways that we might come up with a politics that includes more people.
1: Absolutely. Um, well, I just wanted to give you some space at the very end of this to maybe just just provide our listeners with, with, with one... One big takeaway that, that you'd like them to have from either reading the book or at least listening to this interview, um, what's, what's, what's one big takeaway that, 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 that you find most important about this book that you put together?
0: Yeah, we're still on the Southern journey, and you can't really know where you're going if you don't know where you've been. And we've been lots of places, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and that the South is a big place with a lot that's going on, and uh, that people have made their own history. And so we can still make ours going forward. Absolutely.
1: Well, again, the book is Southern Journey, The Migrations of the American South, 1790 to 2020, uh, published by LSU Press. Um, it's a fantastic book. It's a, it's a lovely book. It's a beautiful book. Um, and I'm sure Ed, you won't mind me saying uh, for any of those interested in learning a little bit more about it, you can obviously go, go to LSU Press's website, uh, but you can also check out the new American history and all the things that, that you all are putting online to maybe get a taste of some of the things that, that, that you explore in the book as well.
0: Yeah. Thanks. That's the, uh, to bring the things full circle. That's the the point of what I'm trying to do now uh, with use the digital, To call attention to all the great things like the work that you do with Washington Post, Uh, people need to look at BunkHistory.org, which is a real-time curation of every representation of the American past in all media every day. Uh, I will warn you, though, if you go to it, you will spend more time than you intend because it's so fascinating. So people need to look at BunkHistory.org to see uh, just how vibrant uh, the study of the American past is right now. Brandon, thank you so much for having me on your show, and I, I wish you well with it.
1: Yeah, thanks so much, Ed. It was great having you.